Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in meditation, dharma, metadharma, emptiness, extinction, rebellion, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Rinzen Pamo. Rinzen Pamo, also known as Charlie L. Aubrey, is a British-born Vajrayana practitioner living in the U.S. They were an apprentice in the Arotair tradition of Tibetan Buddhism for 20 years and are an experienced Dzogchen meditator and mentor. Rinzen received the London School of Economics Fei Shaotong Prize for their master's research on the Chinese tech industry. They worked on international development projects in India, Africa, and the Middle East, and as a program director for Amnesty International. Rinzen writes at vajrayananow.com and has recently been publicly journaling their progress through Chula Dasa's system, The Mind Illuminated. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode entitled Vajrayana, Engineering, and Jiu-Jitsu with Rinzen Pamo. Rinzen, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Hi, Michael. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're so welcome. I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time, and I am surprised that we get to do it live and in person here in the studio in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That's great. Awesome. So I would love to begin by asking you just a quick question about your background for listeners who aren't aware of who you are or what you do. So I'm coming from a fairly traditional background of practicing Vajrayana. I guess I've taken what you might call a depth-first search. I've been practicing in the Arotair Vajrayana lineage of Tibetan Buddhism since 1998. I became an apprentice in 1998. Now, until recently, I'd never heard of the Arotair lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. Where does that come from? It's a lineage in the Nyingma school, which is sometimes referred to as the old school Mm -hmm. of Tibetan Buddhism. It has a strong non-monastic yogic tradition, and that's the tradition that I have belonged to over these years. And that's one of the things that attracted me to that kind of practice as well. That it's householder practice, non-monks and nuns. Non-renunciate in style. And so you began this how long ago? I became an apprentice in 1998. Mm -hmm. I actually started meditating in 1990 was my first experience of meditation. And I was sporadic in my practice through the 90s and then started hanging around the Arotair retreats around the mid-90s. I was practicing with other groups then at that point. Is Arotair mainly a European thing at this point? Uh, no, there's a Sangha in America as well. We have Lamas here in the Bay Area. There's Lama Senge, who's a Tantrika, and Lama Zeme, who's a very, very experienced meditator. She's been teaching meditation for decades. Both of those have apprentices, so they have small sangha of practitioners that they work with. Hmm. And are you also a meditation teacher in that tradition? I was. I started mentoring around about 2006. So I took ordination in the tradition in 2002. And then in a few years after that, we set up a mentoring program. There's an online email 
course on the four analgios, which brings people in to ask for a mentor sometimes. So over the years, I've mentored a lot of people in that scheme. I guess N equals, you know, nearing 100 maybe. And so naljors are the meditation techniques of the tradition? Naljor is the Tibetan word for yoga. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. sort of yogas of the mind, if you like. And so now you are a software engineer? Oh, I would love to be. I've been learning to code for just over a year, so I'm a junior level developer. I'm hoping to move into the tech industry. I've got a lot of background in project management and been working in international development. Most of my working life was in that area, in human rights. My last work was as a program director with Amnesty International. So yeah, I'm wanting to transition into using that experience at some point, but in the short term, maybe get some more engineering experience in a team, that kind of thing. Well, you're in the right part of the world. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, actually. You know, I've already met with various people who work in tech and, you know, I like the Bay Area very much. Yeah, looking forward to it. Awesome. I've been reading your blog and you tend to be very systematic. I am. Oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. I love systems. So the thing that I've been reading mainly on your blog, what is the name of the blog again? It's called Vajrayana Now. Vajrayana Now, yes. And so you began this very interesting project of taking the Mind Illuminated book Mm -hmm. by Chula Dasa, which Mm -hmm. is, of course, a very popular meditation manual right now based on Theravada meditation techniques, mainly shamatha techniques from the Sutrayana tradition. Mm -hmm. And you've been sort of going through the book stage by stage using Mm -hmm. your very advanced Vajrayana meditation skills as a basis for just trying this completely different system. Mm -hmm. And then you've been writing about how that's going for you. And I find this extremely fascinating. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been very interesting. I had several motivations for that project. One was that a proportion of the people that I had been mentoring over the years, you know, maybe two thirds of those people were coming from shamatha vipassana backgrounds. So, you know, some of them had a lot of experience in that kind of approach to meditation. So I was mostly teaching meditation very much from a Vajrayana perspective and able to talk about that experientially and to be a sounding board in that situation. But only really having a theoretical understanding of the differences of a very systematically staged shamatha vipassana path. So there was one motivation that I really wanted to understand that experientially and really know how that might connect to the more expansive experience that we have sometimes in meditation and that the four naljus are designed to work with and to produce. So that was one reason. And then there was also this sense that, you know, in that tradition, there's been a shift, I think, in the way that it's presented. People like Daniel Ingram did a really great job of talking openly about practice. I think that's a really good thing. There are a lot of forums for that kind of meditation practice. There are many places that people can test their experience anecdotally with other people who are maybe a little bit further along the path. Now, 
in a traditional Vajrayana context, mostly you would be doing that with your teacher, maybe with mentors. It's not traditionally conventional to openly talk publicly about your practice. So in some senses, I think I was intentionally breaking a taboo there. There are good reasons for that convention, for sure. And it's maybe not so necessary if you're in a small, close-knit sangha and you have peers and very ready access to people who can check in with you and, you know, it's kind of very easy situation there. But that is not available to many people who want to approach Vajrayana practice. Yeah, Um, you know, it was the same taboo in Theravada practice. And so that's what was so radical about Daniel's book, maybe still is Uh so radical about Uh it, and also Chuladasa, Kenneth Folk. Um, All of these people were really going against the norms and rules of the tradition are to speak about these sorts of details of practice very, very openly. Right. And so that has led to like a renaissance in meditation practice, right? Many more people interested. I think that's a great thing. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And, you know, there maybe are one or two forums for people approaching Vajrayana, but I think we could have a lot more of that, especially for those who want to test their experience empirically. You know, anyone who has a clue these days is is wanting to understand differences in terms of how different meditations function and, you know, how to apply them in different circumstances. So, yeah, I'd like to encourage that. Yeah, I guess taking some risk. It felt a little risky to me to start doing that publicly because, of course, you know, you're sort of exposing all your, (laughs) you know, humanness in approaching a practice brand new and, you know, not necessarily always having a great experience or whatever. So, yeah, I felt I was taking some risk, but that it was a good one. Yeah, and it's part of what makes that blog so compelling is that here's this very advanced Vajrayana teacher willing to not only try out this other practice from a completely different tradition, but be utterly transparent and vulnerable about what that's like. Well, it's been a great experience as well. You know, it's opened up a lot for me in terms of the understanding this kind of very precise approach through steps. And, you know, I love that the system itself is so beautifully crafted. That's something I've just really come to appreciate a lot. So like the staged nature of, yeah. Right. You know, each stage has a very clear description of where you would need to be to start that stage, how you apply the techniques that you've learned and how you will recognize if you have reached a point where you're accomplished in that particular stage. You know, there's sort of circles within circles, so each step leads very nicely to the next one. And, you know, it's kind of perfect in a way. There's a sort of systemic perfection about it. It's a complete system. And as someone who appreciates engineering approaches, there's a side of me that really loves that aesthetic presentation of, you know, beautiful system. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely noticed that about TMI. I also, as a, you know, someone who 
teaches quite a bit, often wonder if systems that are so delineated sort of like over-determine outcomes. I mean, it seems like many different types of practitioners have very different experiences and maybe things that don't line up with the stages and systems at all. Right. So the other side of being an engineer is that you start making things in the real world and it doesn't work out according to the system. And I think a lot of the training that engineers have over the years is learning in situation, so in a situated context, learning to apply method. And, you know, I don't know if it has been put exactly like this, but in a spiritual context, what you might say that kind of learning is, is getting to understand the difference between absolute truths and method. And that sounds kind of basic. It's like, oh, well, yeah, you know, obviously they're not the same thing. But something that I think engineers bring to practice is that they absolutely know that difference. You know, they're not interested, or some people are just not interested in a perfect absolute truth. They're way more interested in understanding things in terms of principle and function and then applying that to meditation. So I think that moves beyond this approach that, you know, we often hear about in connection with engineering, which is a sort of tool bag approach, which, you know, that's good. That's yeah, sort of the, you know, the bodger mentality, where we're just going to make it work no matter what. Right. And like this idea that you've got a bag of tools and you're going to choose one for the right moment and apply one in one context and whatever. And, you know, that's great. That works. It's a good starting point, but it's limited in its approach. It's a little bit like rote application, which is very necessary for systematic process, but it's not the end point. If you're engineering, you might start with that. So, you know, as a coder, I start learning particular functions or learning like the difference between iteration and recursion and then learning how to apply that. And then I get to a point where I can kind of apply that by rote and, you know, it becomes slightly boring or whatever. But as an engineer over the years, you're getting so familiar with that at a sort of automotive level that you can then build and create. And I think that is really important aspect of Vajrayana as well. There's this very yeah, I guess constructive element, actually. You maybe start with deconstruction, but you are building and creating all the time, and you're bringing this intuitive understanding of randomness, which engineers have, you know. Shit happens when you start trying to make things work, and that is an intuitive experiential understanding of randomness, which is really important for the starting point of Vajrayana practice. Now, in my own uh, Hindu Tantra background and also working for decades with Shenzhen mm-hmm. Young and his system, neither of those have a staged approach all right. at all. I mean, Shenzhen's system is highly, highly systematized, but not in terms of stages, steps, steps and yeah. linear progression. Yeah. Right. And so I'm curious, is your Aroter Vajrayana background, does that have steps and stages in the same way? I think it would be more congruent to describe it as landmarks on a topology of experience. So there are identifiable 
landmarks and those are described in a particular way and you can move between those the more experience that you get say for example of non-conceptual empty space of mind the more that that becomes a I want to say reference point but it's not exactly a reference point it's a place that you're familiar with and can then employ in relation to other experiences within the whole sort of range of practice yeah now, interestingly, the thing that I understand, which is very little, of the four Naljor practice from your tradition is that the first Naljor, the first stage of shamatha, would be the one that was most closely related to anything in TMI. Yeah. Theoretically, and yet actually, the practice is almost like opposite. That's really interesting. Part of my exploration with the Mind Illuminated has been really getting to grips with precisely what is different and what is the same about those two practices. So there is this emphasis in shine, which is the Tibetan word for shamatha. Literally, that means calm abiding. Yeah, which is what shamatha translates right. to in English also. Yeah. So the method of shine is what you would call remaining uninvolved, which is not exactly the same as the technique employed in The Mind Illuminated. So there's a more concentrative aspect there. So, for example, everything is described in the mind-illuminated system in terms of objects. So right from the start, there is a concept that's brought that there's a separation mentally from the object, which might be an arising thought or whatever. I hope I'm doing justice to the system in describing it this way, that the technique employed is to separate in some sense, from that object mentally so that you observe or see it, but you're maintaining a focus in a different locality on the breath. And in Shine, the starting point is that you would expand out in all directions from the arising thought. So your relationship with that thought changes. The mental experience is different, but there is no ignoring you wouldn't ignore anything in that practice. Would you say it's fair to say that you're keeping, you know, the ground of being or Buddha nature mm-hmm. or whatever as part of the meditation continuously? Yes. I'm just thinking about that. The ground of being is not the same depending where you're at. I mean, if you're if you're practicing Shine as a newcomer then you might describe the ground of being as the experience of the gap that occurs when you don't think for the first time or for a while. There's this new experience of, oh, wow. And then, you know, the thoughts come back in and Mm. whatever. But if you're sort of some years down the line and you're kind of quite used to that, then the ground of experience might be, the ground of being may be, the different relationship with thought as that reappears and a kind of expansive experience where thoughts come and go but they're you know sometimes described as transparent or you're just there with the movement of the thought yeah that's what it sounded to me like it was describing in the practice well you're certainly in those four naljors the end point isn't non-conceptuality. It isn't the empty space of 
awareness. That's one of the landmarks that I mentioned earlier, you know, always coming back to. So something that I've found in my own practice over the years is that I've always gone back to Shine practice and found that deepening that experience helps with the relationship with thought and with the practices are a little further along the line there. So it's always been sort of cyclic in practice. Yeah, come back to the basics, yeah. And the ground changes as well. The, the ground deepens and, you know, the experiential understanding just becomes fuller, maybe. Mm. Is that a good description? Yeah, it reminds me in a way of this type of practice where you go back over and over again to the basics and then that Mm -hmm. helps you as you move along reminds me of going back to novels one has read right you know as a teenager or whatever yeah i was thinking about that recently and uh, i realized we had some friends over to dinner and uh, we were talking about the shambhala system and uh, i realized that two of the books that i've most read other than obviously some of the Arotair books over the years, are uh, Chogum Trompa's Shambhala books, The uh, Great Eastern Sun and... Sacred Heart of the Warrior. Sacred Heart of the Warrior, yeah. Yeah, I love those books. Definitely the Sacred Heart of the Warrior I've read over and over for decades, right? It's a fabulous book and just keeps delivering, right? Yeah, yeah. So obviously your blog posts are very long and very thoughtful and considered. So, you know, understanding that we're doing a little bit of, let's say, violence to that thoughtful consideration in summarizing. But I'm curious if you can say what things about the system compared to, you know, the Vajrayana practice that you just found just weren't right for you or didn't work. And I'm not trying to criticize the mind illuminated. It's more about the difference. Right. I think the sub-minds framing is something that just doesn't work for me at all. So one of the ways that the whole Mind Illuminated project is crafted is that it synthesizes various different hermeneutic frameworks. One of those is the sub-minds idea, which is the idea... It goes back to Minsky, actually, I think. What was that paper or Society in Mind? That's it. Mid 70s. It was a book. Yeah, right. So he was working with representationalism and trying to figure out, you know, how does this work? What is actually going on in terms of the way that we cognize and relate to supposed representations in the mind. So Minsky describes these sub-minds as like a set of moving parts which are coordinated by something that has to be looking at those parts or there's some way of bringing them together and that they're sort of competing in some way. Yeah, there's competing sub-minds and then there's kind of an orchestrator overmind that, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, theoretically you've got this inevitable problem of the recursive homunculus and, you know, somehow that framework just doesn't work for me. I know that it does work very well for others. David has said that he finds it quite useful. That's my husband. David Chapman. David Chapman. And my friend Kai Sotala has written quite a bit about that on the Less Wrong site. So it clearly does work for some people. The problem that I find in application is that I just don't have a problem with conflict 
I kind of welcome it. So this idea that there is a need to pacify competing different subminds, I'm kind of like, why would I do that? And I think the motivation for doing that comes from fear of conflict. And that is somewhat contradictory to the Vajrayana approach. In that path, you're activity is working with stuff and as soon as you have difference and you know going back to this idea of the engineering mindset that once you're working with the reality of a situation you get conflict you get unexpected things arising and messing stuff up you're dealing with difference all the time and common to vajrayana as well you are working with the stuff of your everyday life, you're not leaving that behind. And therefore, the approach that there's somehow a need to have some kind of control and bring order to everything is not the overall approach. You're not ordering things. There's an appreciation of order and systematicity, but there's also this recognition of the role of randomness. And as you develop your skill as a practitioner in the same way that, you know, just rolling with this metaphor here, in the same way that you develop your skill as an engineer, what you're doing is learning an intuitive response to randomness in some way. You're getting the depth of experience that allows you to make decisions in contexts that are working with the forms that you've got and creating different forms and you know i want to say manipulating so why not let's just say you know, you're getting messy right yeah you know i would say that the purpose for chuladasa framing it that way with the subminds is that this is how to become concentrated right, right. and so the idea is you've got one main submind whose goal is I'm going to get concentrated. And then the other ones are saying things like, no, we're going to go play Pokemon Go or we're going to go out on the street or go eat lunch or whatever. And so those are distractions. And so the idea is, well, you want to pacify those subminds and get them in line with the main submind who is trying to be concentrated. So given that, you know, you're saying the submind theory doesn't really work for you. How would you model the development of concentration in this like welcoming of competition model? I wouldn't call it concentration. Yeah. I think that's a major difference. And employing the submind's framework does work to increase that concentration. I think it has side effects. And I think, you know, when you're approaching any system, it's a really good idea to understand potential side effects, understand its failure modes, as well as the way in which it works, because all systems obviously are limited. And, you know, we could talk about Vajrayana in that way as well. I'm not only applying that kind of rigorous analysis to the Shamata Vipassana path. So the method that you would employ is remaining uninvolved in a more Vajrayana-styled meditation. And rather than it being unidirectional, which is toward the concentrative, you know, the emphasis on maybe looking at the breath or being with the breath and going further and further and further into that deeply concentrative state until you get to jhana experience very much associated with shamatha vipassana deep concentrative stuff 
in Vajrayana, you're actually moving out in all directions from that. So you may start with having the breath as a little support for your practice, and you may find that that helps to maintain your presence of awareness. But as you become more adept, you're leaving that behind, actually. You're expanding the field of awareness. It feels quite different. You know, I'm not 100% sure of this, but something that I think happens in the Fornalgeal context is that you're cultivating the expansive, bright kind of non-conceptual experience first. That is the place that you get to without having that really deep concentrative side of things. And so your first pit stop, if you like, is an experience of very sharp, clear mental clarity. You don't have thoughts arising, but you're right there. Really beautiful space as well. It's a very vibrant experience. It's not super, super calm as I have discovered the kind of non-conceptual experience with the mind illuminated is so calm. It's so nice, you know, and it's quite different. So I think the mind illuminated system encourages this calm space first, and that's explicit. After joy, there's tranquility before equanimity. And eventually the mind illuminated does describe clear, open, somewhat more vibrant, bright space. But for the most part, that is within the context of equanimity. And there is this kind of backdrop of calmness. I think that can be a very valuable experience. It's certainly a good one to have when approaching Vajrayana. It's not qualitatively quite the same as what's described as nepa in Tibetan, which is um, absence of arising with presence of awareness. And so just to take the other side of things, besides liking the systematic element of the mind illuminated approach, what just kind of personally for you practice wise was like a pleasant surprise or something you really enjoy about it? Oh, there's lots I enjoy about it. You know, It leads to this really great physical experience. It's a very, very good, feel-good path. I thoroughly recommend it for anybody who isn't feeling great and wants to feel good. It really does that. You know, I did experience my visceral bodily response to things just being spontaneously like, wow, you know, (laughs) this lovely kind of, you know, waves of sensation just going about your daily activities. That's really great. Something that I've yet to explore that I don't have a lot of experience with are the uh, deeper jhanas. So I think in the terminology of that system, I'm probably talking here about the lighter jhanas. Yeah, the illuminated jhanas. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I'm thinking I'll probably do maybe an intensive retreat and see if I can understand better that depth of jhana experience. But so far, that lightness of being that it gives a rise to, that's, that's lovely. Yeah. Now, part of your project, and I think you're doing this to some extent together with David, is to talk about 
ways to adapt some of the Aroteer practice or Vajrayana practice that you're steeped in to a more modern Western context. Mm-hmm. And this is a little shift of gears, but I'm just curious, what do you see as maybe things that you learned from the mind illuminated approach that you would use for that adaptation or just other general concerns or interesting details of that idea. Right. Yeah, one of my motivations in doing this project was to figure out whether it's possible to apply a linear progressive approach in a modern contemporary context to Vajrayana and whether that is congruent and would work or not. So some of the ways in which Vajrayana is presented already is very linear progressive. You know, there's the tantric nondra or, you know, lots of tantric practices which are, you know, you don't do X until you've done whatever. So there is a question, would it be possible and would it be useful to have a more progressive path of stages here in a sort of Western context? And I kind of go backwards and forwards over this question. It's not the way that I learned. I think, you know, I've been talking about randomness and the kind of engineering approach. And I think in some ways that is not so unidirectional. It's much more working with sort of coming back around to lots of different applicative contexts and figuring out on the fly. So I think maybe it wouldn't be best to have a strictly linear stages, although many people might want that and enjoy it. But I think part of what Vajrayana does, part of its method, is that it kind of bangs you up against order in some way. It knocks order and moves you toward incorporating the random aspect. So the base, the starting point for practice, either in Vajrayana meditation or in applying Vajrayana method in your daily activities, in the context in which I'm talking, it's just an understanding of the impact of randomness on activity. Often it's said that starting point for tantric practice in Buddhism is really difficult, and that's understandable from the perspective of shamatha vipassana or from the perspective of Mahayana. You have in those systems that the starting point is quite a lot of experience of, in Buddhist terms, emptiness, which might be, you know, non-conceptual appreciation or, yeah, reaching a point in meditation where you can actually sit without thinking for a while. Actually, it doesn't take that long to get there if you're practicing fairly regularly. But, so you know, I don't think it's that difficult, to be honest. And I also think that if you approach Buddhist Tantra as a path in its own right, so you're not looking at the starting point from the perspective of Shamatha Vipassana or Mahayana Buddhism. You're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, some ordinary life circumstances and like, okay, I'm thinking I want to start practicing. When you look at it from that perspective, you regard it as a path in its own right, then the starting point is understanding randomness. And we do, you know, particularly people who've had engineering training, they know exactly what that is. So that's what you're working with. 
you're working with that in your daily life and your meditation can help that. Your meditation is, if you like, the support for your starting point. Good. So can you just give a more concrete example of using meditation to help one understand randomness like in their lives? So let's take emotions because everybody likes to talk about emotions. You know, we have these... I love emotions. Oh, <laughs> oh good. So do I. Uh, we have these complex relationships with our emotions and it's a big deal and everything. So the way that randomness helps in terms of understanding emotions is that if you've meditated for a little bit and you're beginning to experience some space and then, you know, you have your emotional turbulence or whatever, you start to have a different relationship with, say, anger, whereby you're fully conscious of the related thought stream, you're very conscious of the sensations that are occurring in the body, and the element of randomness there is that you allow the unpredictability of a situation with awareness to let what happens unfold. So you're not simply giving in to an expression of the emotion and you're not repressing the emotion and you're not ignoring it either. You are literally on the spot working with the sensation of the emotion and the space that you have around it and you are learning congruent application. So no matter what emotion arises, you have a practice of working with it directly and clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if that's really difficult, you can step back from that and, uh, you know, distract yourself or whatever or do something different. I mean, the continuity there is awareness, maintaining awareness through the process. Yeah. And that's certainly how we're trained in the Shinzen world. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to notice that in typical Theravada or Vipassana practice, you know, there is an idea that there's like emotions you want to get rid of. Right. Like there's actually bad emotions that hopefully over time you're just going to uproot yeah. and eradicate so you'll never be angry again kind of yeah. thing. That's very definitely a part of the path, traditionally, you know, as traditionally as meditation goes anyway. And, you know, there's a whole worldview surrounding that. There's a whole framework that gives rise to that practice. You know, it's a practice that had a genesis. It was born of a particular situation, which was an ascetic, renunciative worldview. And so the idea of that is eventually the end point is cessation, stopping. Yeah, and not just a momentary cessation in meditation, but cessation from ever being in life again and getting out of the wheel of samsara and so on. Uh -huh. And it's fascinating because I see that these days, maybe it's just part of being like a grumpy old dude, but like it doesn't seem like people realize this theoretical foundation of Theravada practice is maybe to put too strong a word on it, but it's sort of anti-life. Like you don't like the world and you're trying to leave. It is. But, you know, I think the interest and the emphasis is in, well, does this work? What works in terms of the practice? And if it's working in some way in your life, then actually you don't care much about the framework. It doesn't matter. So I think the potential risk is that you get a certain way along 
the line, and then... And it's been working all along, right? You are getting more concentration and more equanimity, and yeah. And that's good, and then suddenly something bad happens, like, you know, a no-self experience, <laughs> or, you know, you have this kind of explosive, dissociative experience, and how do you deal with that? And that can be very positive, and it can be quite dramatic as well. And, you know, I have had since I've been writing the journal up and working on this project, I've had people write to me and say, I'm in psychological meltdown. What am I going to do? I didn't realize this was going to happen. And you know, I don't want to be alarmist about that because, you know, it's only a few people who have written with that kind of circumstance that they're dealing with. But I don't think it's that uncommon as well. I think the no-self experience is difficult. It can be traumatic. You need to have a very good, strong psychological base in order to know how to cope with that. And especially if you've got a lot of other things going on in your life, you know, you need to approach it fairly cautiously. Yes. So something that I've always appreciated about the Vajrayana approach is that it doesn't have this view that we're trying to get out of life and leave yeah. the world and so on. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Yeah, it's got all the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe thinking about what the failure mode of that could be. You know, there's a lot of power that comes from learning to have awareness continuously, you know, it gives you more control of situations for sure. And then if you get too much into that control element, you know, you can go off on a bit of a kind of dickhead ego trip type of thing. So that is maybe a risk in that sort of framework. So frameworks have their positive sides and they have their potential failure modes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's all about knowing the failure modes. I mean, the one in Vipassana of the fact that the practice is pretty dualistic to begin with, that you were describing, you know, it's observer over here, looking at object over there. That's a very well-known failure mode in Vipassana, and there's practices to undo that, right? right? That really work, you know, eventually you take the sense of the observer and make that the thing that's being observed, and then, you know, it sort of pops that bubble, so. Well, that's very good, but, you know, as well, there is this end point, which is the no-self experience so putting these two systems together, thinking about how would or does Buddhist Tantra relate to the no-self experience, I think the question there is, okay, what next? What are you going to do with that? How does that relate to your everyday experience? Yeah, wouldn't one of the many traditional answers be, well, that's the beginning point of tantrism then, because you've had this no-self experience, you have this shocking awareness of vast space, right? and now you can step into tantrism. From that perspective, yeah. So there are different possible approaches to tantric practice, yeah. And obviously the failure mode that is most in our face these days with Vajrayana is the issues with, you know, the guru model oh, of the teacher. Yeah. You know, there's this guru abuse meme, and then what do you know, a ton of people go and um, play it out perfectly. It's like the stereotype couldn't be more beautifully enacted, should we say. So, you know, yeah, you know, sublimely, that's horribly. Enacted. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Now, is that something you've been working on, like potential ways to 
modernize or upgrade or somehow find a way to work around the issues that we see coming up with the traditional guru model? You know, I think I want to say that we rightly hear about the bad situations. It's a shame we don't hear about them sooner. And that does the headline thing, you know, it takes everybody's attention as it should. What you don't hear about are the circumstances where that kind of relationship works well. Yeah, we hear about it on at least deconstructing yourself because I'm always reminding the listener that my guru experience was exquisite. Yeah, it was wonderful. Excellent. Yeah, it was a positive one. And mine too. You know, I have huge gratitude to Nakhchan Rinpoche, Kandra Dechen, to my early teachers, Nordzin and Erdzin in Wales. You know, those were some great times and I treasure those experiences. And also I would strongly recommend anybody who wants to have a personal hands-on relationship with a teacher in the Vajrayana traditional context to go to the arrow tear you know that's been my very positive experience so what i would like to do is look at that experience look at where it works and understand that in terms of principle and function so the principle is learning by doing i would say it's situated learning and the function is good wholesome spiritual development. So when you put it in those terms, I think everybody understands that and can think of examples of that happening in many, many contexts. So going back to the engineering context, I have this experience of sitting next to a mentor, a coder, who has been working for decades and the way that they refactor my code is just amazing. You know, it seems like magic. It's like, whoa, what, wait, stop. How did you even do that? What were you thinking? You know, why would you use a dynamic programming thing here, but not there or whatever? And as they talk through what they're doing and as you kind of see them, it's a bodily thing, you know, that you see them working and you experience the nature of that relationship. That isn't something that you can get from books. That is not something that you can pick up just by applying lots of different techniques. It's a relationship. And we understand that relationship. You know, we have it in these different contexts. This yeah. is certainly, you know, in the good version of academia, that would be the idea of your, you know... Your PhD thesis, maybe. Yeah, your advisor or whatever. You're going to learn how to really do the thing from just kind of gluing yourself to them day and night and see how it works. Yeah, there's so many contexts you can think of this working in. There's lab work, you know, how do you even know, how do you learn how to do that stuff? It takes years. On yeah. the other hand, at least, again, in the good version, maybe maybe it does take place in some of the more dysfunctional versions of academia. You're not, you know, continuously being taught that the advisor is literally God or is literally some kind of perfected being or is literally, like, worthy of worship. Right, and you shouldn't be in the Vajrayana context either. That's kind of tedious anyway, isn't it? You start viewing a teacher as omniscient and infallible in some way, and that's going to lead to problems. I mean, the teacher's role is really to cut through that, I would say. Yeah. Although it is an explicit part of a lot of the training that is there. Yeah, I don't know. I've always found that a little tedious. I don't like that kind of aspect. 
So in the traditional language, there is the idea that you regard your teacher as an enlightened being. Now, in my terms, that doesn't mean that you go all kind of gaga and childlike and lose your discriminating faculty. And in fact, my teachers have been very encouraging of much more of the kind of discriminating side of things, the sort of discriminating awareness and figuring things out you know yeah that's yeah. excellent that's very lucky in a way yeah i feel very lucky yeah so as you've been working on this project what else have you thought about regarding like gurus in the western context well i think we need to talk about it i think there needs to be a kind of social analysis which is somewhat different to a private response so timo Curran has this socioeconomic analysis of societies that get into an equilibrium of preference falsification. I think his book is called Private Truths, Public Lies. Strong recommend for that. And he paints this picture and he uses real life examples. One of the most memorable and fascinating of those was the Eastern European Cold War social norm whereby the whole of society reaches a point where each individual may have private concerns or strong disagreement and yet they're not willing to say socially for fear of ostracization and there's a self-perpetuating cycle which more and more people are not willing to speak out and that reinforces the social norm of preference falsification you know pretending to go along with the regime or whatever and you get stuck at this point of equilibrium which has quite a large range of difference between what people feel privately and what they're willing to talk about publicly. I think that's a useful analysis to bring to a smaller scale guru situation that has gone wrong. Uh, some of the ones that we've heard about recently have been perpetuated for many, many years. So you have to ask the question, you know, why did that happen? Yes, there was a sociopath. I use that word advisedly, like Sogyal Gokar systematically set out to create a situation where he could then abuse people and use his position of power. And then how does that continue? There's this group dynamic occurring where... Yeah, you, you have know, to wonder what, you know, the people around him who saw this happening, who were well aware of what was going on day after day on the ground, mm -hmm. then there's years passing where they're right. not, you know, speaking it's out awful. about this. Yeah, yeah, so like... And you know, I'm reminded of your uh, fellow guest, Chandra Easton. You know, kudos to her, you know, for talking publicly about her experience in a similar kind of situation and for talking out at the time when she was a young woman, you know, and she was shut down by senior members in that group. Now, that, I think, is an example of exactly this kind of group dynamic. So we're not just looking at a hierarchical structure here. I don't think the structure is the problem, actually. I've seen collaboratives and cooperatives in the past. I've seen them explode with horrendous power relationships. So I think the point of analysis being a group dynamic that may or may not have been intentionally orchestrated by a guru figure, that is a useful thing to bring. And there's another a different analysis that plays into that that is called evaporative cooling. 
I think that's particularly relevant in this Western context that we have where we're living in a democracy where, for the most part, you can just walk away from situations. So this evaporative cooling concept, I think, was coined by Eliezer Yudkowsky. And the idea here is that as the dysfunctional group norm perpetuates and becomes more entrenched, the people with higher openness leave, they just walk away. And that plays into the reinforcement of the dysfunctional situation again. So you've got these two things working together. So everyone who's left in the group are the people who are okay with what's going on? I doubt very much that a lot of people are privately okay. I suspect there's a huge amount of cognitive dissonance in situations like that. You know, what I mean is they're okay enough to stay. Exactly. And they're not going to talk out. Or they just don't know how to address this situation privately or how to leave. Yeah. So it becomes a self-reinforcing group or a self-selecting group. So how do we deal with that? You know, if we know that that is the kind of dynamic that we're looking at, I think the only way is to have more public openness, you know, people talking about that kind of dynamic and encouragement of you know, people just being honest when they find themselves in those kind of situations. Because, you know, let's face it, people do, many people do. It's not gone away yet. And so does Timo's book, what was his last name? Timur Kuran, K-U-R-A-N. And what is his recommendation? Does he have a, you know, method for undoing some of these features? Hmm, I don't remember. It's a while since I read it. He has really good practical examples. He had both from left and right political situations, which makes it more interesting as well. He's got these examples. But yeah, I don't remember him having a, this is the path out. He may well do, but yeah, I've forgotten. Um, Okay, so anything else you want to get to today? There's the idea of the teacher as a guide. So I like the word guide. If you take that in a literal context, you can think of a guide in the mountains. And, you know, I have a great fondness for mountains and walking in the mountains, um, going off track, exploring the uh, scenery, bushwhacking. And this idea of a guide, you know, anybody who's been trekking in Nepal, you have a guide. Wow, they've got experience. You know, they know what's going to happen if you go off a little side path or they can read the weather. You know, they have this sort of situated, contextual understanding and holding quality. You know, they're so reliable And they're dealing with the unpredictable all the time. So I like this idea of a teacher being a guide who has maybe just trodden that particular path a few more times than you have. Yeah. What are you finding exciting or interesting or just delightful in the meditation or spiritual, whatever you want to call it, world currently? Well, that's an interesting question. Mm. Well, you know, I've always had a great love of conflict and I really enjoy the physical stuff a lot. I really love the learning through bringing yourself up against the growing edge of your own 
psychological, physical development as well. So those things aren't separate for me. I've always loved the physical practices and, you know, I'm continuing to enjoy that in martial arts and, uh, well, I'm hoping to continue to enjoy that in martial arts. What particular martial art form are you most acquainted with? Uh, Jiu-jitsu, outside of the spiritual context. I trained in the Lingesa Terma, which is associated with the Arrow Tear for you know, maybe 10 years or so. So that was great because it's a whole system that your body is your practice and that's very explicit in that system. But kind of supplementary to that, I have trained in Jiu-Jitsu and that is a great learning experience from a very literal physical place of understanding how to try to get some space you know I mean anyone who's been in the situation of a beginner jiu-jitsu practitioner you're constantly fighting for breath and when you first have 300 pounds of black belt on top of you it's not a pleasant thing you know you really you're you're banging up against your physical emotional limits I think a lot of people who don't practice jiu-jitsu don't see the emotional side of that but for many the learning is that you are learning to deal better with the emotional content of being attacked and constantly being in that kind of fight-flight response. And that the point at which you experience that becomes further distant as you become more skilled in that context. So again, another approach to Vajrayana would be jiu-jitsu practitioner. They're learning to get more space around the emotional, physical situation. And then as you become more and more skilled, you're able to apply that in other parts of your life. Rinzen, thanks for coming on Deconstructing Yourself. You're so welcome. It's been a lot of fun. It really has. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat. If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. 
By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the DeconstructingYourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at DeconstructingYourself.com slash sign up, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>